As always, our soundtrack is brought to you by the Astounding Blue Leaners. Check them out if you, you've got a bit of spare time. This week, I'm joined by friend and mentor, Twyla Kaufman. This is the first episode we recorded during lockdown, um, and there's many more to come. So join us as we take uh, a little trip down memory lane with Twyla, as she takes us from the streets of LA to Beverly Hills, where she played as a kid, where her career then took her as a player, um, and that transition into coaching where we're going on the, the detour of coaching here. Our journey's taken all over the world so far. Uh, and I met Twyla um, in Edinburgh at the Orium last year on our UEFA licence. And, and we managed to click straight away. And we spent a hell of a lot of time um, talking life in the game, to be honest with you. So it made sense to, to get her on the podcast so she could share her journey. Um, her understanding and knowledge of the game is fantastic. She's had a vast number of roles uh, within the game. And she goes into speak about them. Um, within this she speaks about coaching at college with Pepperdine we then touch on lockdown at Houston Dashus now where she is and her experiences um, with the national squads so please sit back please enjoy and hopefully we'll see you all soon stay safe bye now Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. How have you been? I've been great. Uh, obviously, kind of thinking about everything that's going on in the world and sending thoughts and prayers out to those that are kind of immediately affected and just trying to make sure I make the most use of this time in terms of, you know, connecting with family and colleagues yeah. and current players and things like that. It's interesting you say that. How are you managing to connect with the players? Because obviously you're working at a very high-profile club. Uh, Houston and Dash. So, how are you just keeping on top of the players? Well, we're we're actually just talking about this as a staff. So much stuff that we've learned just during this time, where we've had to get creative. So, just like we're using Zoom right now, yeah, we're using Zoom a lot with our players. Um, we're doing a lot of kind of remote video feedback using pro footage, mainly of men in the EPL to kind of layer in and teach how we want to play since we can't walk through it with them this season on the field. And so doing that, and we're also doing team meetings, kind of team building um, exercises like remotely, which is really, really interesting. And so actually later this year, if, if things continue to progress um, with our league, if we're able to return, we know that there's going to be a part of the season where our facilities are being renovated and the big worry was, you know, how are we going to get everything we need to done in a week? So one of the takeaways for us during this time is it can be done remotely. Yeah. And that requires a totally different skill set than on the pitch. So we're all kind of working on that. Um, But it's been really eye opening and and enjoyable. Yeah. How has it been for yourself going into that environment? Because you touched on earlier that you were kind of in that in between when we met, in the summer 
and we done a lot of chatting about that. And how did you find it going into this full on environment that you're in just now? Well, it was really interesting because I got hired in August and the season starts in March, April. So yeah. I was in the final kind of third of the season. So it was my first professional job, uh, my first time in Houston full time mm -hmm. and first time working with the staff, never met the players before, although I had some overlap with some of the players at the club level, college level before that. Um, and then joining into a season a team when the season had already progressed was kind of interesting. I really used, I intended to use that time really just to watch and perform my role, whatever was asked of me to the best of my ability, but really try and take in and not disrupt something that was already going. Um, but to my kind of surprise and, and delight, the staff and the players really invited me in at a, at a deeper level earlier. So I was able to, participate in training, actually coach the sessions, um, do a lot of the individual work, really get to know the players, touch on the culture piece a bit. And it's been really, really great. But I, that time in the beginning, you know, you just don't know how it's going to go. And I always think it's better to be invited to your place than just step in and take it. Yeah. Head coaching is a little different, obviously. That's, you got to go in and set a tone. But as an assistant, that was a main goal of mine. And I was really hoping and praying that the players would come to me, you know, the staff would come to me and they did. And so I got to participate, you know, on every level, really, it was really great. Yeah. You're touching on that there. You've worked at a lot of levels within football. Do you think that you'll get the main advantage from being a head coach yourself and then being able to assist? And because what I, I speak to you about this all the time, what I really liked about your knee license was how you approach people and how you give them the little nuggets of information and the little the little bits of knowledge that you've got obviously from your playing career and your coaching career and um, do you think that helped stepping in from a, a head coach point of view into that as well i i do i really feel i always knew that if i went back to being an assistant i was going to be a much better assistant than i was the first time around and I'm one of those people that actually spent 10 years with the same head coach prior to becoming a head coach. So yeah. I was the assistant and associate head coach at a school called Pepperdine University, worked with a great man named Tim Ward. And we, we were really good friends. It was like a brother sister relationship. And we had a lot of good give and take between the two of us. And so I really learned how you could make that work. And also the type of openness it takes from a head coach and trust that, you have to have to make that happen. And then I was really fortunate at UC Davis to have great assistance, um, still friends of mine to this day. You know, we talk and collaborate all the time. Uh, but I knew after having gone through that, there were so many things I had missed before as an assistant that I just didn't know. And I think when you're an assistant, you always think you're always going to be supportive of the head coach. But when you have an idea and you throw it out there and you suggest it, and they don't take it, and then maybe whatever they chose work, in the back of your head, you're kind of going, oh, I would have done this, so now yeah. I'm right. And it's like, no, it's, it's not really like that. You never actually know as an assistant if, if the head coach didn't go with the same thing that you would go, go with, if what you would have done actually would have worked. Yeah. You know, everything in football has to be tested, and it's going to be different against different opponents under different circumstances. The wind could be blowing a different direction, and your whole tactics go out the window. So. Yeah. There's so many things up in the air, and I think it. I, I learned a lot of humility when I went to the head coaching role, and it came to that that I didn't know I was lacking before. 
Yeah. And so, and I also learned the value of assistance. You know, I had great assistance, great assistance when they did their job really well, when they were able to get to the players and, and help them understand what we were really asking of them to help them understand why things may be really urgent for me on a day where they might interpret that as stress or something like that. It's not stress. It's, it's that urgent. And there's an yeah. opportunity that we have to take advantage of. And when they were able to relay those messages, go over the fine points, you know, technically and tactically, it really made a difference for me. So I think I'm a significantly better assistant coach after being a head coach than, a, than I was before. And um, it's a joy to know that I'm helping a head coach in that way, as well as the players. It's, it's an important role. Yeah. No, it was, it's something I've always really wondered about. I think the last time I was a, an assistant coach was U11s um, a long, long time ago. And I was only an assistant coach for two weeks. And then the club turned around and said, we're going to have a second U11s team, so you take that team. And I was like, ah, man, I've never coached in women's football before. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know these little kids. They've only played four a side. They don't know what a seven a side goal is. And mm-hmm. it was a bit craziness. So that was the last time. So I, I obviously knew you from before, but doing a little bit of reading up on you as well and, and knowing about that. Um, could you tell us a wee bit about the, the college programmes that you've got, especially when you were at Pepperdine and and UC Davis, that's, they've not really got stuff like that over here. So can you give us some information on that? Yeah, I think this is one of the big difference between kind of our football infrastructures between yeah. you know, our two countries and just areas of the world, really, is that the youth programs here, up, in, up until this point, I think things are changing a little bit, but up until this point, have really been geared towards helping young female players play college soccer. Yeah. So I always had it in the back of my head. In fact, we didn't have a pro league for the women when I was growing up. So I always had it in the back of my head that when I was done playing, I was going to coach and I would probably coach, you know, club and college. Yeah. And I gravitated towards college because that's where the opportunities came. I always coached the club on the side a little bit. But I started in a position called a graduate assistant position, which is a really great opportunity for young people that are wanting to figure out if coaching is for them. Um, I think all head coaches want somebody that already knows, but there's a lot of administration that goes into coaching a lot less um, football than, or soccer that you think there's going to be as a young person. And so being a graduate assistant puts you in a position where you really understand how to be a part of a bigger business or a university infrastructure. So there's money that comes in, money that goes out, there's recruiting of players. there is academic piece that you have to keep in mind and manage just all sorts of things that you can't learn on the pitch. You have to be in a business setting to learn. And so I was a graduate assistant at Northern Arizona university. The head coach there was a assistant at the university of Arizona where I played. And so he really got me in. He helped, he had me coaching right away. I learned a lot of stuff in the office. I wasn't allowed to recruit based on my role, but I did all the prep work for that. And then I never actually graduated from there because I got an opportunity at Pepperdine University pretty quickly. And Pepperdine was already on the rise at that time. So I basically got hired at 24 into a program that would become a, you know, consistently top 20, sometimes top 10, um, sometimes top five mathematically program. And I did a lot of growing up there. It's a small Christian university. So 
Typically, the schools that are finding the most success are schools that have big American football programs where a lot of money is being pumped into the athletic departments. And because of a law here called Title IX, there has to be an equal distribution of opportunity for women. So a lot of those programs benefit from the finances. Uh, women's soccer programs benefited from, benefit from those finances. Pepperdine was not one of those schools that didn't have an American football team to offset anything. So it was a unique experience in a different way in that women's soccer, men's volleyball, sports like that were really the show and the whole community would kind of come out and support us. So we were kind of the little school that could and uh, they're still doing really well over there. Um, and then I went to a school called UC Davis, which uh, about six or seven years prior to me taking it over was a Division II school. So it wasn't in the highest uh, comp, um, division of the NCAA yet. So part of my job was to help them continue to make that crossover from Division II school to Division I, even though they were already Division I before we got there. And that was a unique experience because where I went to Pepperdine and we were already competitive and we learned how to be more competitive, went to Davis and they were competitive with the teams that were in their conference and at that level, but hadn't really been exposed to all the other local schools yet that were competing at, um, that had that type of football money. So that was a unique experience, just learning how to grow and develop a different type of program, a little bit bigger school, big public university, those type of things. Yeah. It's just, it's always interested me because you always get to see it on TV. So I always think to myself, how does it look? What's it like being in the middle? Oh, how is it working with students and, and stuff like that? Because we, we get the players after work or college or, or school and they come in, they train three nights a week, they play at the weekend. And then if you're really lucky and you're, you're part of Rangers or Celtic of this world just now in, in Scotland, then they're full time. Um, Hearts are putting a bit of money in as well. So they're full time. They've got full time players in training during the day. So that's different. Um, Whereas us as a second division team, we are three nights a week. We're a very young squad with three or four experienced players. So totally so different world. Even though college athletics is similar to what I think would be a full-time club abroad in that they all live near each other. Yeah. You have the opportunity to train on site, all of those type of things. There's a consistency to it. There's a lot of rules in place that make it hard to train. So, yeah. for instance, right now, uh, the season goes, women's soccer in college goes August. And if you're really lucky, if you win the whole thing, like the first week in December, yeah. most teams will be done the first week in November. So it's a very short season. Yeah. And then in the off season, there's periods of the year where you're not allowed to touch the ball with your coaches. It's only physical fitness. Right, okay. It's, and that would be designed to protect athletes. And I, I think in general, athletes in other sports where they're really a lot of money generating sports where someone might make them overtrain or something like that, um, there's a risk for that to protect athletes and give them a time of year where they're just working on their bodies and things like that. It, you know, in football, that's not really conducive to mm-hmm. getting better. You know, tell an athlete they can't touch the ball, you know, immediately you're going to lose interest. And it's not just a physical game. It's a, it's a skilled game and you have to incorporate the ball in fitness in in my opinion. So that's a challenge at the college level um, in that it seems like we might have them all the time. They're there, but there's only so many things uh, college coaches are allowed to do with their athletes. Yeah. That's interesting. I never knew that. 
I never knew that. Is it the same when it comes to working with Houston as well? Because there's someone, um, I don't know if you know, Denise O'Sullivan. Um, she played mm-hmm. at Glasgow City um, okay. with Houston Dash, but she's been, I think she's just spent some time in Australia there and she seems to move about quite a bit between America and Australia. Is that something to do with that as well? No, the, the pro level is really different. It's really enjoyable. We can pretty much do anything we want with them. Yeah. In, the, in the off season, it is a time where just to create parity and things like that, you can't train them. Um, and a lot of them do use the opportunity to go to Australia in the off season. But in season, we can pretty much dictate a time a schedule and activity schedule that works best for them. You know, obviously we want to use sports science and be smart about that. And Houston is a really interesting market, you know, unlike where you guys are at, it can be up to like, you know, 110, 120 degrees at different times. So we have to be really mindful about the best ways to utilize their time, energy, and, and be efficient. Yeah. I was going to say that. How, how do you cope with weather? Cause it's obviously, obviously you've experienced a lovely Scottish weather. Uh, well, you've been <laughs> over here, um, and you've experienced some horrendous weather as well. So, I was going to ask you how how do you differentiate that? But well, just like anything else, you you looking to turn everything into an advantage. So yeah. instead of looking at it like it's a hardship for us, which we acknowledge, we use you know heart rate me- uh, monitors and all other sorts of sports science tools to make sure that our athletes are doing well, staying hydrated. Um, we're very sharp on the time, but obviously we want to always turn those into an advantage and remind people that everybody coming into the environment is going to struggle a little bit with it. And so everything from the way that we would play tactically at home versus away Mm -hmm. um, and just a mentality piece to it, you know, is, is something that we focus on and just kind of move past it. I will say having, Right before I came to Houston Dash, I was pretty much in Europe for the whole summer. Yeah. <laughs> and it was hot in France, but not as hot as it was in Houston. And the first practices were in the morning, so no big deal. But the first game, I walked out in warm-up and was about to say something and thought I was going to pass out myself. So a lot of credit to the athletes for yeah. learning how to adjust. You know, the body's an incredible thing, but so is the mind, and they get it done here. Yeah, definitely. You touched on your European adventure. How, how did that first come about when you you started? Because obviously you, you left in Edinburgh and then every time I seen you on social media, you were somewhere else. So how <laughs> did that come about? How did you plan that? Well, you know, I'd, I'd been coaching uh, in college soccer for 16 years. Mm-hmm. I'd also always done a little bit of work with our Olympic development program and also our federation, which are two separate, you know, kind of entities here. Yeah. And so it was time for me to take a break from the college game and figure out what I was going to do next. Part of that was the situation I was in. I knew wasn't the right thing for the course of my life. And then the other part was my experiences actually with the UEFA courses in Scotland and traveling around Europe prior to that, working with our federation and seeing the difference between just how the game is played, even with the FIFA rules versus our college rules. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that I always would try to explain to non-Americans coming over to play in college is that I think sometimes there's a perception that all we do is kick the ball or, and it, it's not that it's at the college level, you can sub almost unlimited, limitlessly. So that creates um, a tactical pull to press everybody. You know, mm-hmm. when you can sub a lot and you're also managing maybe a team of 30 women that, 
you know, are all expecting to play. A lot of teams are going to play a more high pressing environment. Anyway, it's just a different game because of that. And there's some similarities, um, but those rules really make a big difference in the way the game is played. And so the more work I did with our federation, the more I was exposed to all the different types of people and thought processes I met in the UEFA courses, as well as just traveling around the world. I just thought I need to do some more learning. So I took a break. I took what most people would call like a sabbatical from college sport, thinking I would get back into it, not really sure what the next step was going to be. And right after I left my job, I was really fortunate the Federation called and asked me to participate in some of the camps as an assistant. And I had already had my UEFA A license, that piece that we were at together lined yeah. up. So I knew as long as it didn't conflict with that, that would be okay. And basically they kept me employed almost the whole summer. Um, so I started in Portugal with them with the 17s. We played three or four games there, then flew straight from there to Scotland for the UEFA A first part. Yeah. And then while I was there, I think you, you and I might have been sitting together. They called and asked me to go work with the 15s. They were in Holland. Yeah, yeah I can remember that, yeah. And then uh, I went from Holland to France where a friend of a friend needed somebody to fill in with him for something he was going to be doing. I worked a few camps in France and I kind of said, okay, I can do all of this as long as the Federation who had flew me over to Europe in the beginning could fly me back. And I just picked the world cup final yeah. the July 8th. The final was the seventh as you know, my end point, if they can fly me back and everybody who's kind of hiring in me in between these things can fly me to and from, then I can make this work. So everybody kind of agreed. So I, I basically started like May 15th and was gone all the way up until I showed up in Houston in August, <laughs> traveling through as many countries as I could. Yeah, it was, it was, no, it was when you said that you were going to go and do that, I thought that's pretty cool. Um, so you actually inspired uh, me and Eva, who's my partner, to go and book a holiday at Ibiza um, after the license just to relax a bit and because it's pretty heavy going, you think to yourself, oh, it's going to be fine, you'll be all right. And then when you leave, you're like, Pwah. and we, our, our little girl, she was she was really young at that point. So she was only a year and a bit. Um, well, you, you're touching on two things that I learned from that whole journey that I think are helping me right now cope with, you know, that dealing with COVID-19 yeah. and being isolation and, and trying to keep it going and stuff like that. But I really did have, other than one trip, because I think I worked maybe five or six trips with our federation that summer through completion. And I always had a little bit of time rather than flying back to the States, having a little bit of time afterwards to be where I was or a lag. And just two or three days to connect with somebody that you love, like you're saying your family to go on a trip or having two to three days to just take everything that you've learned and thought about and really reflect, mm -hmm. package it up, make sure that you have that for the future. You really, really thought about that, I think is a game changer. 100%. So right now that, you know, the challenge at home is I see all these people online saying, you know, if you don't come out of this, if, if you're not affected, you know, physically and you don't come out of COVID-19 better, stronger with more, you know, licenses and things like that then you, you've blown it you've missed the point and I'm like you know I don't know I, I 
I'm, I struggle with those things. I see, you know, free webinars and things like that. And I'm reading a lot. There's a lot of really good content out right now. People are sharing, not being stingy, but I think we, especially here in America, live in a kind of consumer lifestyle yeah. where we're just consuming, consuming, consuming. And, you know, that's the thing about coaching. And one of the things that I really pulled from the UEFA A license is that there's so many different ways to do something. And if all you're doing is taking in information and then trying to regurgitate it at different points or never even getting the opportunity to apply it, it's, it's meaningless. Yeah. But to really take it in and check it, compare it to what you're doing, what your thought process would be, you know, all the different things that could come up. What if this happens? What if that happens? How would you adjust? Do you still believe the same things? Even the language that people are using, reflecting on that, asking yourself if, if you're using the best language is really, really important. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm doing right now. Even with reading articles, listening to books, things in football, outside of football, I've really told myself, okay, Twyla, unless you're going to package this in some way, like a little PowerPoint that you can then give to a player, something that you can pull from later, you've taken notes, you've really reflected in some way, don't move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. I've just stopped working just now. So they've put us on a thing called furlough where the government will pay part of your wages and your work will pay part of them, which is fine because I've never had anything like this. So I've got three weeks to sit and reflect. Um, which is a word you use there, which I don't do very often. Um, I'm quite bad for it, to be honest with you. The only time I really started doing it properly was on the A-license, when we would sit at night and have dinner and talk to each other about how the day went and what was going on and getting food poisoning off their dodgy mac and cheese, which was <laughs> one of the worst experiences in my life, but hey-ho. But um, that's the first time I really sat and reflected on things. I've always been one who's as soon as our season finished, I'm getting ready for pre-season plans. I've already planned half of it in my head and I just need to put it into practice and who we're signing targets are going to be and stuff. And this season was a little bit different because we finished um, and I had such a gap of, I think it was four weeks between it and I've never really had that. And that's when I kind of made the decision to leave Glasgow City where I was. Um, I'd been there for nine years, brought a team from U11s all the way to reserve team football and it was like right well where do we go next mm -hmm. or where do I go next and fortunate for me some of the players followed so it was a nice reflecting period and just as we were getting more teeth into the season because our season's February to November COVID came <laughs> so my first season as a first team manager kind of gets shot down in flames but it's a learning experience for everybody to be honest with you and I'm the same as you don't keep taking stuff in if you're not going to put it back out in a useful way I can't do that yeah. Well, I've done, I did it for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, there's that feeling that you just need to keep up with everybody. You need to keep everything up with everything to stay relevant. And, and, and I, there is truth to that. You know, if you're not current, if you're not being innovative, the game will just pass you by, but mm -hmm. there is something to the gifts that we already have and learning how to use those tools within our skill set, within our personality that I think is really, really helpful. Um, and I love that you make you know made a change and and it's unfortunate that there was a little bit of a stop, but you know as I read you know all these autobiographies and I listen to more and more managers speak out, you know change is necessary. Yeah. I think that you know in football we're taught to be really loyal, and I'm like that to a fault sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, it was devastating when I left, even though I knew it was the right thing to do because I hurt a lot of people. 
but ultimately following my gut and doing what I'm doing, some of those same people that I've, that I hurt, I'm now in a better position to be a reference for them. I'm in a better position to help them in football. It doesn't always turn out like that, but change is good. It helps you grow. And I think we're also modeling something for our players. Yeah. Um, about resiliency and change and openness and not holding on to things too tightly. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, and I don't know about where you are, but people here seem to hold change against you in, in a bad way and think, oh, they've moved, they've done this, they've... And really, you're only doing it to maybe better yourselves and help other people as well. Um, I think if I stayed there for too long, it would have got stale and nobody would have, nobody would have progressed or developed or anything would have happened and I don't mean that in a nasty way but you know the way things can go and and Mm -hmm. sometimes it can get stale so um, I think the more mature you become in the game the more the more you've been in certain positions you start to see things differently I I remember being um, a young younger coach and having false narratives in my head like Mm -hmm somebody would leave a position that at that time I would have killed for and you go, well, what's wrong with them? Something's wrong with them, you know, like, and I, I hate saying this cause I'm sure it's been said about me at different points now that I've been in the game long enough, but um, you just don't know till you, till you know, yeah. and leadership positions can be lonely. Leadership positions can feel uncomfortable when you're not supported in the way that you need to be supported. We all have different needs Sometimes it's just not a match with the players that you have and it's better for everybody to move on. Sometimes it's not a match with the overall organization. And, and sometimes it just, and this is the big thing I try and tell all the young players, especially that are, as they're maturing, they're moving on to other things in life besides football is that it doesn't have to be bad. You know, change doesn't always have to be like a bad breakup and lots of rumors and things like that. Sometimes it's just time for a change and you're moving from, you know, I like to say glory to glory or good to good, you know, but everything, I truly believe everything's working together for the good. And so you can move from a position of strength to another position of strength. And that's easy when you're maybe moving from assistant to head coach or, you know, manager. Um, or a smaller university here to a bigger university when it's when it makes sense to other people then mm-hmm. nobody questions it it's it's just when people don't understand your logic um, but we're not responsible to other people responsible for doing what's right for us and when you do those things it always kind of falls into place definitely I think that's a big one for me that over the years you kind of learn to block out what other people are thinking mm-hmm. you sometimes sometimes you'll listen and you'll be like Nah, nah. And then you'll move on because I, I, I spoke to you about it on the license that I, I went to Rangers that never worked out and left. And it was probably the best for everybody, to be honest with you. And did it break my heart? Absolutely, because it's a team that I love. But that's football. Maybe it will come around again one day. Okay. Um, let's jump all the way back to your childhood. Where did football start for you? So we have a kind of national youth organization here. It's very recreational called AYSO. Mm-hmm. So most people here would have played in AYSO to begin with. Um, my dad was a, a banker. So we lived in the city of LA, yeah. but he used to take us into a more ritzy area called Beverly Hills. <laughs> um, and he put us on a team there. They had nicer grass, but I think also he probably had it in the back of his mind to be you know, networking mm-hmm. with business professionals. So I played um, in Beverly Hills AYSO, which is a really unique experience. And then, you know, over time, um, my parents ended up splitting, but I still loved 
and I lived with my mom, but I still loved soccer. So I got an opportunity to play on a U19 team when I was 12. So wow. not because I was that good, but because in our area where we live, that was, there was only one team. There were very limited field space and things like that. And eventually when those players left for college, um, I got the opportunity to play club again for a team that was only 45 minutes away. And then a coach that had worked with that original team who I wasn't very close with at the time, he, he lived in our neighborhood and he would see me playing outside all the time. So he had taken a job with one of the top clubs in our country. So Southern California is a real hotbed for women's soccer in the United States. That's where I grew up. And he kind of knocked on the door one day and was like, Hey, I see your kid out here. It, I need a carpool partner to get in the carpool lane so I can make it to work, you know, in time all the way down in Orange County. If I buy her dinner and, you know, allow her to train with us, can I take her? And my mom said yes, which could have, I guess, conceivably been a bad decision, but it ended up being one of the best decisions, you know, she ever made. That gentleman ended up being like a father figure to me. Yeah. So that's really where the, the heart for coaching um, came from. It was driving, you know, the two hours there and an hour back without traffic listening to everything that a coach thinks about getting ready for training and things like that that just made me really fall in love with not just the game but you know how you can help and influence people I always wanted to pay it back um so and part of that is we pay for all of our dues here in America and so I couldn't afford to play pay all of our training fees so I would work everybody's camps. We have a lot of camps where, you know, people play, pay money to go to camp and get some extra training and things like that. So I was growing up, I'm 40 now, in a time in LA where a lot of the directors of our major youth clubs were just getting started. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people that are, you know, kind of sitting at the top of the club game right now are, are people that when they were just starting, I got to work like their little side of the road camps and things like that and really be around them while they were, really in the beginning stages of their clubs and um, learn from them and also get a lot of hands-on experience coaching that I think a lot of people don't get to their, you know, older. Yeah. And when I was in college, I had a real opportunity to continue to coach. So I was coached club. I coached high school. I was part of a program called coach and training. So I was basically, I would, you know, pick, pick up cones and set down cones and things like that for people that were already coaching. But I would, I was really fortunate in that I got to do it for our state association. So I started growing up the Olympic development ladder as a coach really when I was like 18 yeah. and kind of matriculated through coaching training program, you know, assistant coach, a head coach of a state team, assistant coach at the regional level so our country at the time was divided into four regions yeah. and then ultimately a head coach in the region um, so that was a great learning process for me they really helped me grow over time and gave me opportunities to have success and failure as a coach mm -hmm. um, and of course that's separate from clubs so while I was coaching in college at Pepperdine I was there for 10 years my boss was always like Twyla you have to coach on the side you have to get experience so I always had club teams as well. And I started working for the Federation at that time as well. Started as a scout and then started running local training centers and um, going in as assistant coach to full national or youth national team camps and things like yeah. that. How do you find the, the national stuff? 
compared to club? Um, it's totally different, you know, and I think it has to do with the pay to play model really is that at the club level, I've worked, I've been on some great clubs. I've worked for some great clubs where there's really permission to kind of say, this is our way. This is how we do things. And if you don't like it, there's a choice elsewhere, but there's always the measure of, well, they're also a client because they are paying and measuring i think that's the hardest part for directors and doing what they know is right but doing it in a palatable way for for players and families and but at the national team level especially at the youth level there's so many players to pick from here we've such a large country yeah that i think there's a more eagerness and willingness from uh parents especially to just be open to whatever's asked of them if it's playing a position they're not used to playing style they're not used to playing um you know issues of discipline sticking to things like that and it's just so much easier to progress a player when there's no confusion over the little things that set you up to have a great training environment um a great progression a a cycle of kind of seeing what happens in the game just identifying what you need to work on adjusting and moving forward it just streamlines everything also obviously clubs are confined to the local area and with a national team people are going to come from all over and there's a pressure when you're part of the united states federation to perform at an elite level you know there's an expectation when you put on the jersey as a coach or a player that you're going to be on point that you're going to deliver and there's a different pressure i think and focus that results from that yeah definitely i would agree i've only been fortunate to be part of one and even at that, I was just doing the administration side of it, but it was getting a chance to sit and what I tend to model myself on is the people come first. If you can get the person right, then the player's going to be fine. So I was just making sure I was taking care of the players off the pitch and stuff and mm-hmm. making sure they had water bottles filled up every day. Just small things because they were young. They were only U15s at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And little things like that and reminding them when they're running out the door, remember a bottle? And they're like, oh, thanks. And you're like, don't want you to turn up without that bottle and then you're getting into trouble when there's enough pressure on you just now and you turn up without a water bottle or your rain jacket or and you're like, Phew, but that, that's a big one for me even at first team just now. It's the, the person comes first. If we can get that person right, mm-hmm. then everything else is going to fall into place. And they'll take if you, if you show them that love and that appreciation, they're going to think, well, they're putting it in for me, then I'll put it in for them for the rest of the thing. So that's massive for me. Who was you the, the influences for you growing up? Who did you look to? And I know you've mentioned a couple already, but who was the people that you looked to, and especially in a coaching environment, and thought, I'm going to take me bits of what they do? And was there anybody that you looked to and thought, I'm not going to be like them, I'm not going to take anything that they do? <laughs> I've had a few like that. So, Well, I think just looking back to my first memories, even in AOSO, you know, I always gravitated towards the coaches that made me feel freedom to be myself and, and, and be, be me with unapologetically. Um, as you get a little older and you're into club, it's, it's the ones that push you. You know, I, I, I know that not every, having coached for a long time now, I know not every player receives things like this, but I, I really was taught in my family that people only discipline you, correct you if they believe in you. Yeah. Like that's a form of love. And so I always gravitated towards the coaches that were pushing me. Um, I've 
I've had one coach that I wouldn't want to emulate anything Mm -hmm. that, you know, that that person did. But now that I'm older and I've had a lot of experiences, I would love to sit and ask that person why they made the choices that they did. Because I think as a athlete and sometimes even as a younger coach, you look at people's decisions and you go, that makes no sense. But now that I've been, um, a head coach and an assistant in environments that are complex, you know, you realize a lot of times you're making a decision between two bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Like there's two options that are not great options and you're trying to pick the best option of the two for the people around you. And all the people around you can see is that you, you made an option, you took an option that had a bad choice, that there's something to it that's not great but they don't know what you may have spared them from and things like that. I know that's something that as a head coach, you can't always articulate to other people that there's other factors. So I'd love to go back and sit with that person and ask a few questions just, just to see, you know, and, but the, the main influence in my, the main coaching influences in my career have been a gentleman named Hugh Donald. He's actually um, from Scotland. And so he grew up, uh, as a schoolboy for the Rangers. Yeah. So when I got to visit, you know, their facility and take pictures and things like that, I almost cried because, you know, I didn't grow up with an affection for them because of where I am in my location and a lot of things like that. But knowing how much it meant to him for, for me to be in there, a couple gentlemen from the UEFA B course actually gave me a tour and showed me around. And for me to be in, in that facility, and kind of breathe it in and see everything that he talked to me about every from the, everything from the first team locker room and its simplicity and its history and things like that to, you know, the trophy room and, and just being on the grass. Um, that was a full circle moment for me where I'm like, wow, you know, this is pretty awesome. And I, and I can't believe what he left from a football perspective to come and plant where we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just, when you talk about people, he was a really good people person. Like he, he would make you laugh and yet he would deliver tactics that were really on point. He, he would show you how to get better without making you feel bad about yourself. And I've never heard anybody say anything bad about him, like ever, which isn't a mark of if you're doing things right or not, because, you know, the right decisions aren't always popular. But I think everybody that he's worked with just knows that he genuinely loved him. And this is, so this is the gentleman I used to drive back and forth with. Yeah. And we won too, you know, that was, it always helps when you're winning. It's a lot harder when you're losing. Yeah. And then Tim Ward at Pepperdine, I think um, he's just a really excellent coach. He's super humble and he's really, really knowledgeable. Pepperdine University is kind of on a little hill by the ocean and it's a really beautiful place and he's a surfer and he's kind of got a surfer dude personality. Yeah. So I think a lot of people look at the school and think, Oh, well, of course they're good. They have this ocean view to attract players to, they're going to always get the best players and things like that. Um, but I, I really think he's one of the most unique men that I've ever met in that he's really good at building team chemistry um, helping individual people improve as people, not just football players, soccer players. And then from a tactical perspective, finding ways to compete with maybe teams that are more athletic or have more depth because that's a very expensive school. And just keeping it all in perspective. Um, his faith is really important to me, to him, and it's important to me. So just seeing how somebody 
is able to not compartmentalize different aspects of their life, but let it bleed into all areas of their life. And he's able to do that as a football coach. Um, I think those two, Tim, I spent the most time with him. Sometimes when you spend time around people, you know, you're going to see all their strengths and all their weaknesses. Um, but I have to say overall, he's one of the best coaches any human beings I've ever been around. So I would say it was Hugh Donald in the beginning and, you know, Tim's kind of a measuring stick now. Yeah. I didn't really have an opportunity to work with a lot of female coaches um, until later in life. And Jill Ellis, who just stepped down from being our full national team coach, is the one that brought me into U.S. soccer. Um, watching her from only maybe 20 miles away, I don't know, from when she was at UCLA and I was at Pepperdine, that was really intriguing. And um, Leslie Gallimore, who just stepped down at the University of Washington, I think we're still in an era where women get um, are looked at a little bit differently than men in some positive ways, some negative ways. But um, I think those two in particular for me, watching the hardships that they went through and how they handled it has given me a lot of confidence to feel a bigger freedom to just be myself and really thankful for them. That's great. I, I love just hearing people tell me stories, to be honest with you. That's why I set up this podcast in the first place was to get everybody's stories and sit back and reflect on them and, and share them with everybody else. But I think it's always important to have someone who you can look up to and or maybe not even look up to, just maybe look to the side and think they're influencing me a little bit here. This, this is good. And there's a lot of people like that just now for me. Um, I, I try and take a bit from everybody um, that I meet, especially yourself. I, I just like your mannerisms and how you dealt with things as well. Nothing would ever fluster you. And, there's, there's stuff that you can take from everybody and I really like that there. But I know you're getting pushed for time and you've got a lot of meetings on today. So I'm going to just start off with a wee bit of trivia just to finish the podcast, if you don't mind. What music are you listening to right now? Music? Yeah. Um, well, I just moved to Texas in August. So when I crossed the border, I turned it to a country station. <laughs> so I'm learning all about country right now. And I would say I'm usually in the R&B or, you know, Christian rock yeah. category. Any artists you can recommend? Any? I love Molly Music, M-A-L-I Music. I think he's unbelievable. Um, Casey Musgrove for Christian or for country music. Right. I think she's awesome. Golden Hour is my favorite song right now. I've got that on repeat. Um, and then any old school from, L I'm from LA, so any of the old school rap, I guess, <laughs> would be just fine as well. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you went old school rap. I'm a big rap fan myself, so um, hip-hop man B for me. Recently, my, my daughter, she's uh, just turned two, and some ACDC came on the other day, and she was rocking out and the thing, and I'm like, oh, yeah? how do you even know how to do that? You're two? Like, where's that? <laughs> And it was like something possessed them. She just knew what was going on. And you were like, that's about so funny. Yeah, it was just funny to watch her. And you watch her grown just now. She's, she's adorable, by the way. I love looking at your posts oh, on Instagram. And she's amazing. Like she's so funny. And she's yeah. got a sweet squeaky voice, which is just amazing. So she's just started playing football just now in the house. So hopefully that's something that comes. What about movies or box sets? Have you got anything you can recommend? Are your favourite? What's your favourite? I'm not really into... I haven't watched TV in a long time. Uh, I just started a TV series, The Ozarks, oh. which is, have you seen it? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's, well, 
it's kind of dark for me. It gives me a lot of anxiety, but now I'm at a point where if I don't finish it, I think I'm going to have like more anxiety. So I'm like hustling through them. Um, but that's what I'm into right now. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I just started again last night. Um, what about documentaries and stuff? Do you watch a lot of sports documentaries? Um, I'm watching Sunderland till I die right now. And yeah, I, I, I do a lot more reading, I'd say, than watching. Um, yeah, what what you recommend then reading-wise then? Because I've obviously you seen that I was reading about Carlos Kaiser, who was a bit of a character in the day, and uh-huh. I just finished the book the other day, and I was like, how the hell did he get away with what he got away with? But it was in the 80s, nobody knew. Nobody knew uh, anybody. So. Well, actually, going back to this last summer, I read Brave New World, which was the unofficial diary of Pochettino when he yeah. was yeah that was unbelievable and I actually football was unbelievable but also I just just read like the opening um I forget what it's called but there's a intro in the beginning kind of written I can't remember if he wrote it or his wife wrote it but yeah. everybody should sit down with their partner and read that together. Yeah. I just thought it was brilliant for somebody that's in a relationship with a coach, you know. Um, I thought it was awesome. Um, right now I'm reading um, a book called Necessary Endings by Henry Cloud. It's not a it's not a football book, it's a kind of business book. Yeah. Um, I'm really enjoying that. It's about knowing when it's time to move on and doesn't mean necessarily careers or relationships, but just when to complete a task, even something simple like that. Um, I thought that was really, it's been really interesting. And then I, I'm with all the free information out there right now where people are sharing things. I'm just, I, I'm really enjoying, um, the coach's voice Yeah. and yeah, really good. And the coaching method. And I'm just kind of reading through, um, all of those type of things right now as they become available. No, that's good. I was just checking to see if you were still reading stuff about football, which you never really leave mm-hmm. uh, when you're involved in the sport. I, I said to my partner, I'm going to start reading uh, some novels, some fiction, some non-fiction, and I always Healthy. find myself self going back to sports autobiographies and stuff. And mm-hmm. I finished, uh, have you ever seen The Man in the High Castle? No. I read, I've been watching that, um, but I read the book. And the book's totally different to the show. So I read the book when I was going to Bristol. Uh, and I must have completed it in like three days. I was like, wow. wow, that's amazing. So I came home and started watching the show again. And I've still not finished it because I keep, I'm quite bad for jumping between shows. Because there's so much going on. You watch one with your partner, you watch one yourself. Then you've got <laughs> Disney Plus with a kid. You've got so yeah. much to get through. So yeah. right now we're watching Moana. That's her favourite. She loves Moana. That's awesome. Which is crazy, and you'll probably see on Instagram that she's running about with a Moana dress on today. Which well, then I'm going to be ready for the duet on Instagram next. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be coming. That and I walk about singing all the time. I'm just uh, <laughs> mad on it. That's Twyla. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate I appreciate it. But good luck. Uh, stay safe, and thank you very much. Thank you, and I look forward to staying in touch with you for a really long time. You too. That duet's coming soon.
How do you feel?